phone, open up to Jeremiah chapter 31. There are Bibles in the pew in front of you. There's basically no excuse not to have this text right in front of your face. You're going to want to do that. It will also be on the screen. Uh, And so we're going to read Jeremiah 31 together and consider what God has for us in it. Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, how are we doing in the book of Jeremiah? Awesome. Yeah, good. We're almost to the end. We got 10 chapters left and there is a bright horizon ahead of us called the book of Lamentations. And so take heart. Uh, The title tells the story. Uh, But then we got Ezekiel, and things just get crazier from there. Uh, If you have no idea what we're talking about, this is not an inside joke. We'll let you in. We'd love for you to be in. We're reading through the Bible as a church together this year, and we're on day 233 today, uh, which still finds us in the midst of the book of Jeremiah and some other places that are happening at the same time. But it's a perfect time to jump in, although I'm very aware that sales pitch was not good that I just made. It is, in fact, a perfect time to jump in to join with us as we read through God's word and quickly approach the New Testament and read it together. And so just to catch you up on where we are in the biblical storyline, in uh, 722, we've seen that the northern tribes have gotten overtaken by Assyria, and they've gotten taken into exile. The southern tribes of Judah are still continuing during that time, and 130 years have passed. And this is the time when Jeremiah is writing, and he's saying to the southern tribes of Judah, your day is coming too. It's 29 chapters to begin the book of this scathing rebuke of their covenant unfaithfulness, their idolatry, their farness from God. And he's saying Babylon is coming to take you into exile too. That's the first 29 chapters. In chapter 34 to 52, we see the destruction of Jerusalem. We see all playing out that uh, Jeremiah said was going to happen. The Babylonians come in, they take over, and then the last seven chapters are like, hey, surrounding nations, you're not off the hook. Here's some judgment for you too. So 1 to 29, judgment. 34 to 52, judgment. But right in the middle of the book of Jeremiah, we have these four chapters of hope of God saying to his people, at your bleakest moment in this darkest time, sin will not have the last word. There is still hope for you, even though things seem hopeless. And right in the middle of those four chapters of hope, we have kind of this mountaintop passage in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 31 that we call the new covenant. And that's what we're going to consider together today, what it means to have a new covenant and exactly what God is promising But first, we have to do a little bit of work on what a covenant exactly is. We've seen that word all throughout the Old Testament, right? Over and over and over again. And here's what we see. When God relates to his people without fail, he relates to them through covenants. Every time. So what is a covenant? It's interesting. This idea of covenant challenges us. 
Because normally when we think about relationship with God, we think about it in one of two ways. We either think God relates to us through law, that God comes and says, I want you to do this and not do this, that that's the main way we relate with God. Another section of us think, no, the main way we relate with God and God relates with us is through love. God basically says, hey, here's some things I want you to do, but don't worry so much about that. The main idea is I love you no matter what, right? So we think about it in those two ways. And what we see in a covenant is that it's the perfect combination, the perfect blend of both law and love. It's both. It's not just a legal, binding, dry contract where God says, just do these things. But it's also not just a regular relationship that's just based on love. Um, The best place we see this is in marriage. I got to do a wedding yesterday, so I got to see this play out, which was cool with this passage on my mind. Uh, But what we see in marriage, and I had premarital counseling with this couple, and I didn't start, I never even asked, like, hey, are you guys in love? Like, it's just assumed, right? Like, you're getting married because you're in love. Like, that's the point. But what do we do the ceremony for and all of that stuff? We don't go, we don't do that just so the couple can show up and I can say, hey, everybody, guess what? These people love each other. Isn't that amazing? Let's do a celebration. No, we do like really solemn vows, right? When you really think about what we're saying, I mean, like this is serious stuff we're talking about. And then we sign a legal contract. It's why um, I always encourage people not to write their own vows. If you wrote your own vows, that's okay. But I encourage people not to because one time I went to a wedding and the couple said to each other, I promise to snuggle you every night. They promised that. And I was like, oh man, I wasn't even married yet. But I remember thinking, you do not want to promise that. Like, for all sorts of reasons, you do not want to, before God and these witnesses, say, I promise to snuggle you every night in bed. Like, it's not going to happen. You're not going to want to do it. But a covenant is this perfect blend of both law and love. And marriage is the best picture. That's why God says in verse 32, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. Mm. That God thinks about it like this. And so the big question is, why do we need a new covenant in the first place? Why do we need one? What was wrong with the old one? In Hebrews chapter 8, the author of Hebrews takes Jeremiah 31, the passage that we just read, and he quotes it. It's the longest quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. And what he says is, we needed a new covenant because the old one was faulty. That's his word. Not that it was sinful or wrong. God made it, but there were problems with it. You can say it this way. It couldn't accomplish what it set out to accomplish. It couldn't do what it was meant to do. And so first what we're going to do is we're going to look at three problems with the old covenant, and then we're going to look at three promises of the new covenant. So first of all, three problems with the old covenant. The first one is perpetual sin. Perpetual sin. Can we just be honest with each other for a second? Just us family meeting real quick. The Israelites are exhausting. Absolutely exhausting, right? I mean, we are committed to reading through the Bible But it's a grind, right? Like it's tough. And you, I mean, it's just day after day of idolatry and sin, lack of repentance, God saying, come back, exile's coming. And it's like, oh my gosh, change up the plot, right? Like switch it up. I'm never going to make it. But that's intentional because the biblical authors want us to see that sin plays out in a certain way and it plays out in our hearts in the same way. So let me just really quickly show you how sin 
plays out, kind of this cycle of sin, the first way that sin always starts is with idolatry. Look back at Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 5 and 13. I just want you to remember, this is God speaking. Listen to how he talks. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Here's how sin always starts. It always starts with this idea. I have something that I need to be satisfied in me that God cannot satisfy. And so I'm going to have to find it somewhere else. I'm going to have to dig some other well, go to some other source to satisfy the deepest desires of my heart. And when we start to do that, it always leads to immorality. That's the second stage. It always leads to immorality. We saw this most clearly in uh, Jeremiah 7. If you read through that chapter, in case you haven't, I'll summarize it for you. It's kind of this um, pinnacle moment where Jeremiah is talking about, here's how bad things have gotten with God's people. And he kind of lays out all these sins. But the, the end result, the last thing that he says is, things have gotten so bad that you guys are worshiping other gods. And in order to do that, you've become convinced that you have to put your kids on the altar and, and offer them as sacrifices, burn them as sacrifices to these other gods. And don't you immediately think, how, how does that happen? Like, how do we get that far? How does the heart get that wicked? And it's a picture that the Bible gives us that when we replace worship of God with worship of anything else, there is no end to how far our hearts can go. It goes into all kinds of sin, all kinds of immorality. And so when we ask that question, how do we get here? We have to realize it always begins with idolatry, but see that even in your own life. Here's the hard work you have to do with your sin. You can't just settle for the sin that shows up in your life and go, I gotta figure that sin out. You have to look at the sin that shows up in your life and trace it back to the root idol. It's the only way you'll ever kill your sins. Let me just give you a couple examples. If you idolize comfort as your ultimate satisfaction and somebody threatens your comfort, you are angry. You're angry. And the immediate reaction is to go, oh, I wish I didn't get angry. And that's a good reaction. But the better thing to do is to go, oh, I realized that I elevated comfort to the thing that can satisfy me above everything else. And because my God was taken away, the result was anger. If you idolize money, fear will naturally grip you when your money is threatened. If you idolize control, we get anxious when life gets out of control. If you idolize success, you'll only be secure, you'll only be content as long as you're on top. So you see that our idols lead to immorality. And to kill them, ultimately, we have to figure out what they are. Any sin in our lives at the core is a worship problem. And then that leads, thirdly, to insensitivity. Insensitivity. Look at Jeremiah 5.3. Oh, Lord, you have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You have consumed them, but they refuse to take correction. You have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. So here's what happens. Idolatry leads to immorality, and God says, come back. Turn from your sin. A hundred times in the book of Jeremiah, he says, repent. A hundred times. But they don't do it. They don't turn back because their hearts aren't sensitive to God's voice, which ultimately leads to, and lastly, indifference. 
indifference. Jeremiah 6.10, to whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord to them is an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. So follow the path. Idolatry to immorality to insensitivity to now they're totally indifferent. They can't hear from God at all. They're numb to his voice in their life. We had um, something die in our wall a couple of weeks ago. This is the kind of thing no one prepares you for when you buy a house. There should be a class on this kind of thing. But we had something die. So it tormented us for a week. So it would wait till the middle of the night when we're sound asleep. It's like two o'clock in the morning. And Jen would like smack me because you can't just wake someone up gently. And so, you know, you just get like hit and you're like, oh, burglar or whatever. You know, just go worst case scenario. She's like, there's an animal in our house. And it's like, you listen and it's like, scratch, 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 scratch. It's like, oh no, it's in the wall. We're fine. Which was good enough for me, not good enough for other people. So uh, it tormented us for a week straight. And then it died. And I thought, that's right, you deserve that. Well, the worst punishment was yet to come. Uh, because it's the worst possible thing you've ever smelled in your life when something dies in your wall. Who, who possibly knew that? So you Google it, and you're like, Google has an answer for everything. Like, I took up on my lawnmower. I learned that on Google. That's amazing. They can tell me how to do it. It's like, here's what you do. Cut a hole in your drywall. I'm like, no, I'm out. Like, I cannot, I cannot do that. That's beyond my thing. So it's like, don't worry, in two weeks it'll decompose. And I'm like, all right, we can do two weeks. Let's do this. Come on. What are y'all laughing? Y'all are doing this. What are y'all going to do? You do the same thing. So a week goes by. It just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And then I finally get to the day where I said to Jen, hey, I can't smell it anymore. The smell's gone. And she said, you've lost your mind. It smells worse than it ever has. A couple more days passed. And she said, you were right. It is gone. I can't smell it anymore. And we celebrated. And then we had friends come into town. And they were very kind, and they didn't say anything. Uh, but I said to them, hey, can, uh, just be honest with me. Can you all smell anything in our house that smells a little bit off? And they're like, ah, like a little bit? Yeah, like something just feels like a little funky, like so kind about the whole situation. <laughs> but what's the reality of what happened there? We just eventually, slowly but surely, got insensitive to the smell. And it's a picture of the terrifying and dangerous effect that sin can have in our life if we're not careful and jump off the carousel of this cycle to go, eventually, we get numb to our sin. And we don't hear from God anymore. And we don't want to change anymore. And we don't turn anymore, and our hearts get hard, and we get far down the path from God. And so here's what we have to do. Can you throw that, that uh, progression back up there? Here's what we have to do. Figure out where you are. Are you feeling totally indifferent to anything God has to say about turning from your sin? Repent. That's the answer. Move back from your insensitivity. Figure out where you're ignoring the voice of God. Are you in some sort of sin, some sort of immorality? Figure out what idol that leads back to because this cycle will eventually kill us. And so the first thing we see is that there's this perpetual sin. That's the first problem with the old covenant. The second problem is pointless sacrifices. Look at Jeremiah 6:20. What use is frankincense that comes from Sheba or sweet cane that comes from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor are your sacrifices pleasing to me. Here's what's happened. God set up this sacrificial system to take care of their sin, and the Israelites have thought, oh, okay, here's what we can do. 
We'll just go through the motions of ritual worship and totally neglect obedience to God at all. God can't possibly care as much about, I mean, there are tons of commands. We can't possibly follow all those. We'll just do the sacrifices and go through the motions. And God says, that is the opposite of the whole point of this whole idea. The point was not to move just through rituals in our lives for worship and ignore the righteous living of worship that God actually wants. And so you have to ask yourself this question right now. Is that what your Christianity looks like? Just the rituals, just going through the motions, just doing the things to keep God at bay, to appease him, but keeping him at arm's length and not really caring about the righteousness the obedience, the love of God that God actually desires, that he ultimately wanted. And God has gotten to the point where he said, these sacrifices are pointless. You're just going through the motions. Your hearts are far from me. You think I'm tricked by this situation? And so pointless sacrifices. And finally, that leaves us with the third problem with the old covenant, which is powerless people, powerless people. And this is ultimately the biggest problem. The ultimate problem is they're totally powerless to do anything about this cycle of sin that's led them far from God. Look at what it says, Jeremiah 13, 23. Can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard its spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. The picture is the Israelites have walked this path of sin so many times that they're finally to a point where they're powerless to do anything about it. They can't turn back. They don't want to turn back. And so God finds them in this situation where they have all this sin, these pointless sacrifices, and a powerless people, a nation who's on the the brink of captivity. And he says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. Now, this is such an important moment. Because God could come and say, hey, the old covenant was fine. You people are a disaster. We're keeping the old covenant and we're going to find new people who will maybe obey it. But that's not what God says. God finds them in their lowest, darkest, most distant moment and says, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to stick with you despite the fact that you've disobeyed the entire thing. And I'm going to make a new covenant with you, Israel and Judah. Do you realize how good of news that is? That whenever you're in your darkest, farthest, most disobedient moment with God, you don't have to wonder, hey, is this the moment God gives up on me and finds someone who's not so tiring to deal with? I had a moment like that a couple of weeks ago. Um, Jen and I got in this really big fight. I feel like I always tell you all about fights we have in marriage. We actually have a pretty good marriage, but it's just the example I have. So just work with it and pray for us, but don't worry about us. So we got in this really, really big fight, and um, it's one of those fights where all the things that I hate the most about myself showed up at once. I said things that I immediately knew I was going to regret, things I could not repeat to you because I'd be too ashamed to say it. And I got angry, and then I got stubborn and dug in, even when she was trying to move toward me. And it's just all these things heaping up on me at once. And Satan loves that opportunity to go, oh yeah, this, but also remember this. And also remember this. And I got to the point where I thought, what is wrong with me? How have I gotten here? Who does this? I don't know if you've ever had a moment like that. Moments all the time, maybe. 
But you know what's really good news in that moment? As low as I was, I didn't have to think for one second, is this the point where God has finally had enough? Because it feels like that. It really does. Now I go, the new covenant reminds me that God is a covenant keeper no matter how bad I get. No matter how low I get, God sticks with me in my darkest moments and he does it here too with his people and he gives us this new covenant which comes with three great promises. The first promise is new power. New power. One of the mistakes that we make when we're talking about the old covenant versus the new covenant or the Old Testament versus the New Testament, which is basically the same idea, is to go, okay, the Old Testament was mostly about law. It was mostly about law. It was mostly about obedience. And good thing the New Testament has come, the new covenant has come, which is all about grace. But the reality is God hasn't lowered his standards He still, both covenants have law and grace. He still cares about both law and grace. The difference between the old covenant and the new is that now we have the power to actually obey. We now have the power to actually obey. Look back at verse 32. He says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. It's this reference back to, you remember in Exodus 32 and then again in Exodus 34 because the stone tablets unfortunately got broken, but we had to do this twice where Moses comes down from the mountain in this pinnacle moment of the Old Testament with the 10 commandments written on stone, right? The law has been engraved in stone and they give it to the people and say, all right, now follow this, which is great with one problem. Nothing about their hearts changed. It's not as if they were all of a sudden like, oh, now we know the rules. We'll follow those. It reminds me of um, when I used to do youth ministry, there's a fine line in youth ministry between rules and too many rules. Here's why. If you give too many rules, that turns quickly into ideas. So if you say something like, hey guys, don't bring fireworks and put them in the toilet and set those off. A middle schooler is gonna think, we could bring fireworks and set them off in the toilet. <laughs> it's the same picture here. The law comes on stone, but it doesn't change their hearts. Jeremiah has already shown us this in 17.1. Listen to this verse. This is so intentional how he describes this. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart. The picture is, what good does uh, laws written on stone do when sin is written on our hearts? And so outside of a few people, their hearts weren't changed. The only obedience they could muster was out of duty or fear. So what God does is he comes in and he says, I'm going to give you this new covenant. And with it comes new power to obey. But this is a key. Don't miss this. The new covenant, we do not enter the new covenant through obedience to the law. That's not how we get in. God invites us into the new covenant and then he gives us the ability to obey the law. A key difference between Christianity and every other religion. Every other religion says, do this and you will live. Christianity says, now that you live, do this. But God still cares about obedience. And for the first time, we can obey out of love, out of transformed hearts. Let me give you an example of this different, uh, difference between obeying out of duty and fear and obeying out of uh, love. Imagine, um, imagine a husband who comes home with a dozen roses And he walks in the door and he's holding the dozen roses and he says to his wife, 
Um, hey, I read in a book at some point that um, flowers and women are a good mix. And so I put it on my calendar once every six weeks. I'm supposed to bring you flowers. So I stopped by Publix on the way home, got the flowers. Here you go. <laughs> Who would love that, right? You're like, that is no go. Compare that to a husband who walks in the door and says, hey, I just couldn't stop thinking about you all day. And I think it's ridiculous that roses cost $20 for a dozen, but I just had to buy them for you and give them to you because I love you so much and I just wanted to show you. You see the difference? Same act, right? The roses are handed over. Totally different heart. And this is the privilege of the new covenant with the new power of obedience that God gives us that we now get to obey because God's made it possible by writing the law on our hearts, not out of duty or fear, but out of love and thankfulness. We have it deep ingrained in our mind that the most obedient people are like the dutiful people, the diligent people. The Bible says the most obedient people are the people who get grace the most. That the more grace captures your heart, the more you see what God has done for you, the natural outflow of that is gonna be obedience. That's the new power of the new covenant. We think more grace means more sin. The Bible argues the more you get grace, the less you're gonna sin because you're gonna obey out of love for God. So first we get that new power. Secondly, in the new covenant, we get new presence. Look at verse 34. No longer shall each one of you teach his neighbor and teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. The picture that the author here has in mind is that in the Old Covenant, there was always one person that got to go into the presence of God to interact with God on behalf of the people. So the easiest one to think of is Moses. You know, just like imagine this scene, a couple million people come out of their homes and we watch Moses like walk into the tent of meeting, right? Amazing moment. And then like Moses goes into the tent of meeting and he walks out and like his face is glowing because he's been with God and he says, here's what God says to do. That's the whole picture of the Old Covenant, whoever it is, an exclusive uh, class of people, limited access into the presence of God. And then God says, now I'm going to give you a new covenant. And it's not going to be limited access for an exclusive class of people. It's going to be total access for the least to the greatest. How is that possible? Because we also have a mediator who went into the tent of meeting, as it were, on our behalf, but he didn't just go in to meet with God. He ripped the thing in half and said, come on in. You get access to, no matter who you are in the kingdom of God, you have full access to the presence of God. And we just have to take a second and, and, and just like realize what we're saying right now. This is familiar to us. But there's a danger sometimes we read the Bible and we go, oh man, I wish I could have lived in the Old Testament time. Like how much stronger would my faith have been if I could have watched people cross the Red Sea? Like, are you kidding me? Or the plagues or like the angel armies or like all these amazing scenes. Like if I could lay the fleece out like Gideon and get the dew and like, man, I would be so much stronger in my faith. And the old covenant people are looking at you saying, you have no idea what you have. No idea. Because you have what we always wanted access to God whenever you want it. Any of you, 
in the name of Jesus. And so don't be content. Don't be content for a version of Christianity where your relationship with God is just transactionary. Where you say to God, hey God, here's my sin for this week. And God says to you, hey, here's the grace. See you next week. Man, that is such a low vision of what Christianity could be. The Christianity is the idea that you get to meet with God every day, every moment, whenever you want. And you're transformed because like Moses, you go into his presence. If you don't have a life verse, I'll give you one. It's in Acts 4.13. This is a great verse. You're like, I'm not looking for a life verse. Well, you might be. Here we go. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And it's like these religious leaders, here's all they know. Exclusive class of people get to go into the presence of God like Moses. He would go in and he left transformed. He was a different person. And here are these guys. I don't think they finished middle school. I'm not sure. They're blue collar, normal type dudes. And they are different. Something about them has changed, and the only explanation we have is that they have been with Jesus. Now, of course, they have no idea what they're saying because they don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God at all, but we know that their words mean more than they could ever realize. That these two common, ordinary men have access into the presence of God, and when they they use it, they do it. They walk with Jesus, and they're changed. They're transformed people. We have that same privilege I'm reading a book by A.W. Tozer right now called The Pursuit of God. And this is a a long quote that I want to read to you. Um, But it's so worth it to find yourself on this idea of how do I think about a relationship with God and really knowing him, having presence to his throne whenever I want it. Listen to what he says. To most people, God is an inference, not a reality. He is a deduction from evidence, which they consider adequate, but he remains personally unknown to the individual. Others do not even go so far as this. They only know of him by hearsay. They've never bothered to think the matter out for themselves, but have heard about him from others. And they have put belief in him into the back of their minds, along with the various odds and ends that make up their total creed. To many others, God is but an ideal, another name for goodness or beauty or truth, These notions about God are many and varied, but they who hold them have one thing in common. They do not know God in personal experience. The possibility of intimate acquaintance with him has not entered their minds. While admitting his existence, they do not think of him as knowable in the sense that we know things or people. But over and against all this cloudy vagueness stands the clear scriptural doctrine that God can be known in personal experience. The point of this is not at all some sort of guilt trip. The point is for you to ask yourself, do I realize the privilege that I have as a new covenant participant? That I have access to God and I can know him like this. And then finally and quickly, we have a new priest. New priest, last promise of the new covenant. Verse 34, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So all through the old covenant, right? God set up this sacrificial system. Hey, when you sin, bring some animals, we'll kill them, put their blood, that'll take care of your sin. And the whole time we're kind of going, this is so temporary. Like this cannot fully pay for my sin. This can't actually work. 
And then God in the new covenant makes this promise. There's coming a sacrifice that when it's offered, it will so fully and finally pay for all of your sin. It'll be as if God literally cannot remember them. That's how fully paid for they'll be, how far from your record they will be. And century after century came and thought, man, that'll be amazing. What is Jeremiah talking about, do you think? And then Jesus comes on the scene, and the night before he dies at the Last Supper, he takes the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Jesus is the final sacrifice in our place, the fulfillment of the new covenant that makes it possible for God to say, I don't remember your sin anymore. Look what it says in Hebrews 10. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he was perfected for all time for those who are being sanctified. And so unlike any priest that had ever come, Jesus makes this final sacrifice, which of course is his life. And then he's not in heaven now busily getting ready for the next sacrifice. He's sitting. It's done. When he said on the cross, it's finished, he meant it. That God right now, because of Christ, does not remember your sin anymore. It's that paid for. He's not waiting for someday to throw it back in your face and say, aha, it's really gone. It's really covered. And so Corey Ten Boom says, I love this quote, God takes our sins, past, present, and future, and dumps them in the sea and puts up a sign that says, no fishing allowed. <laughs> Hallelujah, what a savior. Father, thank you for this new covenant that we are privileged to be a part of, that we are privileged to live out, that we really do have new power to obey you out of love. We really do have unlimited access into your presence, and we really do have a priest who's fully and finally paid for all of our sins. I think, God, my prayer is simple for us this morning. We just want to more deeply live out of these new covenant realities. Our hearts go back to the old covenant so often. We want to earn our way in, work our way in, pay our dues, make it on our own. Help us just to lean into the reality that, God, you have promised all of these things and you've done them in Christ, and we get to experience the benefits. Father, thank you for all you've done for us. Hear our worship now and be honored. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.